We are going to be in John 14 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and find that in your Bibles, we are coming near the end of our series as we look at uh, the sixth of the seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John. And last week, um, we saw Jesus make his I Am statement. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says that, and he makes that divinity statement in the midst of a conversation that he has between he and Martha um, because um, he is preparing to exceed her expectations and the expectations of all the people who were there gathered around that family on that day as he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And um, as that statement last week was different than some of the others because Jesus makes that statement in the context of a an individual conversation with one person. And many of the other statements that we see him make, he makes in front of large groups, and in front of a crowd of people, maybe in front of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. But today, he's also going to make his sixth statement of the I am in the midst of a more intimate conversation uh, between he and his disciples. Um, and, and today's I am statement, and you see it on the screen, you know that this is probably the one you're going to be most familiar with. This is the one you will have probably heard more than any. And so anytime, and this is always my appeal to you, anytime you approach a verse of scripture that you know by heart, or you've heard it a million times, pay careful attention to it. Because those are the scriptures that we will read over and miss something great. Those are the ones that we'll sometimes just read and assume that we know everything that it's talking about. And there, and there may be something there deeper that God wants us to see. And if we're too familiar with it, sometimes we will miss it. So I want us to just begin with the text. In John chapter 14, we're going to begin with, by reading the text. And then I'm going to give you a little bit of context to help you because you already know it. You're very familiar with it. So let's read it together. And then I'm going to give you some context as we seek to try to find some new understanding. John chapter 14, we're going to begin with verse 1 and go through verse 6. John writes, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Mm. Some of the most powerful words that we see Jesus speak in the Gospels. Now, because this is such a familiar quotation, again, I want to give you a little bit of context. I think many times when we read these words of Jesus just on their own and we kind of pull them out of the narrative of John's gospel, we would tend to think that this is something Jesus is saying in front of a big crowd. 
right? This is, this is part of what we say to big crowds when we're trying to introduce them to Jesus and tell them who Jesus is. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's the message that we want to shout to the multitudes, right? And so maybe we kind of think, well, Jesus, when he says that, we picture him being in front of a big crowd of people. But he's not. John chapter 14, he is right in the midst of his final day with his disciples together in that upper room. Actually, the gospel of John, the majority of his gospel in, in relative nature to all of the narrative of Jesus' life is so much of it is dedicated to this night because when you begin John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 17, all takes place in this one evening. There are five chapters that John spends talking about the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said in that final night together with his disciples, that last Passover meal that he shared with them before he went to the cross. Because go back to, I want to show you chapter 13, verse 1, which is kind of where the timeline, where it begins. John chapter 13, verse 1 says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, chapter 13 is where John sort of introduces and there's a transition. It says, now Jesus knew that his time had come to what? To leave. He was getting ready to go. He had been with them and spent all of this time with them and he knew it was approaching time for him to leave their presence. And it says that he spent this final time with his disciples and he loved them to the end. And this is how John introduces everything that happens from chapter 13 on. So I want us to look at the things that Jesus says to them in this passage in John 14 and try to understand the context. Now, Get, get that picture out of your mind that he's in front of a big crowd or he's free, preaching in front of multitudes. He's in that room together with those 12. They're sharing this meal together. He's, he's, he's spending what he knows is these last moments together and he, he's, he's pouring himself into them as much as he can. He's preparing them. He knows what he has to do. He knows what's coming, but they... They don't. And so he's doing his best to prepare them and get them ready for what's about to happen. So the first thing he says to them at the beginning of chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that to these men gathered in this room with him. Well, obviously, he wouldn't say, don't let your heart be troubled unless he knew that their hearts were troubled. Think about the week they had had. I want you to put yourself in that room with those men, being one of them. They had experienced during that week the biggest emotional roller coaster of their entire life. How did that week begin? It began with the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This was the peak of anticipation. This was the peak of excitement. Everything 
that they had grown up as Jewish young men, growing up hearing the prophecies of the Messiah. They'd been following Jesus for three years. They, were, they fully believed that Jesus was gonna be the one. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that's been sent by God. And they had all these expectations for what he was gonna be. And that triumphal entry into Jerusalem was exactly what they thought it was gonna be. They're, they're, they're hailing his coming. They had, they had given up everything. They had left their families and their livelihoods and everything to follow him. And now he's coming into Jerusalem. Finally, everybody sees him for who he is. And he's about to take his throne. He's about to be who we anticipated and waited for him to be. He's about to become that. And then in chapter 12, he tells them he's going to die. He starts talking about death. And he says things like, he talks about the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. And he begins to talk about death. And I'm sure in their minds they're thinking, hold on, wait a minute. What are you, why are you, what's all this talk about death, Jesus? Even though he's tried to tell them all along. And then in chapter 13, he tells them, I'm only going to be with you a little longer. And when I leave, you can't come with me where I'm going. Whoa. <laughs> How did we get here? In, like in, in such a short course of time. Like we, you, you came into the city. Like you're, you're about to establish your kingdom and set everything up and make everything right the way it's supposed to be. And now you're, you're talking about dying and you're telling us you're going to leave us? What are you talking about, Jesus? We, like what have the last three years been all about? For you to just leave? And now we can't even follow you? You're telling us you're going somewhere and we can't come with you? What, what does that mean? They had given up everything to follow Jesus. And now he tells them they're leaving. And then in chapter 14, chapter 13 and 14, they're in the upper room together, right? And think about what happens in that room. Jesus takes on that form of a servant and he, and he kneels down and he washes their feet. Do you know why he had to do that? Because they weren't humble enough to do it for themselves to one another. So there's this, there's this humiliation, this, this humbling that they go through because Jesus has to show them what kind of leaders he wants them to be. And he, the one who was gonna be the Messiah, is the one who's kneeling down washing their dirty, nasty feet. Because they're not willing to do it for one another. And then while they're in that room, that's, that's emotional enough to have Jesus wash your feet. But then Jesus speaks up and says, one of you are going to betray me. One of you is going to hand me over to my enemies. And then on top of that, when Peter speaks up and Peter says, oh, Jesus, not me. Jesus says, no, Peter. Yeah, you're going to even deny that you even know who I am. Now, Peter is supposed to be the leader. Peter is the one that the rest of them looked up to and the one that, that, that they thought was going to be their, the, the leader. He was the leader of this crew. And now Jesus is not only saying he's going to die, but he, he's saying that one of them are, are going to betray him over to the authorities and then the one who's supposed to be their leader is going to tuck tail and run. And completely deny that he even knows him. Wouldn't you be troubled? 
I mean, just think about it. Every, everything they built up in their mind, every expectation that they had in a matter of hours was crumbling and falling apart. And Jesus knows this. And it says he loved them till the end. So he looks at them and he says, don't let your heart be troubled. That word troubled literally translated means to stir up or to shake. Like they, they, there was some stability that they felt like they had. But in these moments, as this stuff begins to unfold, you know how it feels. When you're in the midst of something and you're just watching it unravel in front of you and that anxiousness, that, that weird gut sickness that you feel as you're just watching it and it's like you can't do anything about it. The stir up, the shake up, that's, that's what they're feeling. And he says, don't let your heart be stirred up. Don't let your heart be shaken. He knew that they were already troubled. And so what he's saying, he's not saying to them, don't let your heart be troubled in the future. He's not saying, he's not talking about the future. He's talking about right then. He's literally saying to them, stop letting your heart be troubled. Stop being troubled. You are, I see it. I see it on your faces. I can see it in your hearts. Stop. I think about like how we sometimes speak to our kids when our kids come to us or maybe it's the middle of the night and the house is dark and they run into your room because they're scared because they see something, they thought they saw something or, or something scared them and they run to you and you hold them, what do you do? You say, shh, stop, stop, stop crying. Stop being afraid, it's okay. I feel like this is kind of what Jesus is saying to them. He says, don't, stop letting your heart be troubled. All of these things that you're thinking, your mind's reeling, just stop. They're thinking about what's going to happen to them. They're thinking about what it's going to be like without him. What's, what, are the, what are the people that are going to kill him? What are they going to do to us? But I find it so incredible that Jesus is speaking to them in this moment with such compassion and such sympathy because who is the one that's about to go to the cross? Yet, his greatest concern is them. In the midst of his need for comfort, because Jesus was what? He was fully God, but he was fully human. The full humanity of Jesus in that moment was anticipating the, the pain and the torture, and the abandonment that he was going to feel because he knew it was coming. The human part of Jesus needed his friends. He needed to be comforted. He needed to be reassured. He needed comfort from his, his grief and what he was feeling. But they weren't providing that for him in that moment. Why? Because they were so worried about themselves. But what we see is Jesus, even in the midst of what he's about to go through, his biggest concern is them. So he says, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Another way to translate that phrase is to say, you believe in God, and your Bible may say it that way. You believe in God, so believe also in me. So again, with all of these statements, this is before he even gets out the I am statement. Jesus is claiming his divinity right here. He's saying, you believe in God in the same way that you believe in God, 
believe in me. Why? Because we are the same. I am the God that you've trusted and believed all of this time. It's like he's saying, since you believe in God, you can believe also in me. And the thing, the reason that's so important is because he's saying, you believe in God and you've never seen him. You believe, you, you've never seen the Father, but yet you believe in him. But here I am, in your midst, I'm with you. Because you believe in the Father that you haven't seen, I'm giving you every reason to believe in me who, who you are seeing. I'm right here. I am him. And he's already told them there's going to be a time when you won't see me. He said he's going to be leaving. So it's like he's saying, you and, 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 and my people, you, you've all believed in God for all this time and had faith in what you couldn't see. And now the God that you couldn't see is sitting right here at this table with you. Believe in me. Because there's going to be a time again when I'm not with you. And you're going to have to believe in me when you can't see me the same way you've believed in the Father all of this time when you couldn't see him. So he's, again, he's trying to prepare them. You believe in God. You believe also in me. You can trust me. You'll need to believe in me completely the same way you've always believed in my Father. And this is the same thing that Jesus calls us to do, right? Like, we don't have Jesus. We don't have Jesus in the room with us. This, the faith that he's calling them to is the same faith that he calls us to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith the salvation of your souls. Salvation comes from faith. And faith is the trust and belief in knowing that what you can't see is true. If you're a believer, it's because you've trusted and believed in Jesus the way he told his disciples to believe in him on that night in that room. You believe in God, believe also in me because I'm going to be gone. And he talks about later when he prays for us in that chapter. He, don't, he doesn't just pray for them in, in the, the chapters to come, but he prays for us. And he says, how much more blessed, Father, are the ones who, who will believe and won't see? He's talking about you and me. So this is what he calls us to do. Now look at verse 2. John 14, verse 2. He says, in my Father's house. Now there are, there are promises. Like he's given us... He's called us to believe. He's called the disciples to believe and to trust him and to not be afraid. And then he says there are promises that comes with that. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Now, Jesus uses this phrase in verse 2, and he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. And we, we have a good idea as to what Jesus is talking about. 
But they may have been a little confused because the last time in John's gospel that he uses the phrase, my father's house, is way back in John chapter 2. And you remember the story, he goes into the temple and he finds the money changers and he finds the people selling the animals for sacrifice. And, and, and it, 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 they've literally turned the temple into a mall a big marketplace, and Jesus goes turning over the tables and pouring out their money, and he says, you've, you've turned my father's house into a marketplace. So when he says my father's house in chapter two, what's he talking about? The temple. So now he tells them in my father's house are many rooms. And you may be, they may have wondered, well, what, are you, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the temple? Because the last time he talked about his father's house, it was, he was talking about the temple. But he's obviously not talking about the temple because he's already said that the temple's not going to stand. The temple's going to be destroyed. He said one stone won't be left on another. So he's, he's obviously not talking about the temple. But what was the temple? The temple was the place where the Spirit of God dwelled it was where where God's presence was right the temple if you read Hebrews 9 the writer of Hebrews says that there are things on earth that are like copies of the real things that are in heaven the temple was like an earthly copy of what was in heaven the presence of God in heaven, the presence of God's spirit in the temple. The temple was where God dwelled, but that was just a copy. So when he called the temple the Father's house, it was a copy of the real Father's house, which is in heaven, which is eternity. There's also something that the disciples would have heard when Jesus said this. In these, in these ancient times, it was, it was a custom that the patriarch of the family, the father, as his children would, would marry, it was often different. Like in our culture, when you marry, we're like, hey, it's time to get out of my house when your kids marry, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, it's time for you to go. Fathers in that culture would often, wherever their house was, as their family, as their children would get married, they would just build on to their house. And their sons maybe would come and live with them. So every time their family grew, every time one of the children get married, they just build onto the house and make it bigger. And then this one get married, they'd build another big room and they'd add on to that and they'd build another big room and add on to that. This is what Jesus is saying and this is what they're picturing. One big house. I think we think of eternity in heaven like a subdivision neighborhood, you know, that there's, you know, maybe when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, it, it looks like Eden Valley Road over there, you know, with the, with the, there's the dirt and the plumbing pipes coming out of the ground and, and everything's kind of zoned off and Jesus is building all these houses along the way. That's not really the picture. When you look at the language and the things Jesus is talking about, he's saying there's a, there's a big house with lots and lots of room. <laughs> some of y'all will get that, some of you won't. But it's not this picture of a subdivision with, with lots of different mansions. 
In some translations, some, the Bible has been translated that way and used that word mansions, but that gives us this weird picture of all these big elaborate houses just strewn everywhere. Because what does Jesus say? He says, the place that I'm going to prepare for you is for what purpose? So that where I am, you may be also. You're coming to live with me. I'm making a room, a dwelling place that's for you so that you can be in the same house with me. Because Jesus' goal for bringing us to heaven is not to give us a condominium in heaven. It's so we can be where he is. And the Father wants us as close to him as possible. So he's just building on to his house. And he's making more rooms. And he's making this place big enough for all of his children who come to believe. Heaven is about the presence of God, not the stuff. We look at all the pictures of heaven and we read what the Bible says and men who, who saw revelations of what it looked like and, and, and even the Bible says that, that the greatest thing we can imagine and put into words doesn't even come close to how glorious it is. But when we think about heaven, we think about all of the stuff, right? We think about, ooh, what will golden streets look like? What will gates made out of solid pearl look like? What will, what will gems and rubies like studding the walls and, and, and all of these things? We just imagine all this stuff like our consumer um, American, we love money and riches. Like we start thinking about that kind of stuff. You know what? If God made all of that in heaven and, and Jesus wasn't there, it's hell in the sky. You know why? Because heaven is about the presence. It's not about the stuff. It's not about the decorations or how big your, your mansion is. It's about being present with the Father. Where I am, you may be also. And Jesus says to him, if it were not so, would I have told you? He's basically saying, you can trust me. Why would I tell you something that's not true? And he reminds them that he's telling them the truth. That's what that one statement is all about. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Do you think I'm lying to you? He says, no, he's telling them that I'm telling you the truth, which in just a minute, he's gonna amplify and say that he is. He's not just telling them the truth, but he is the truth. So let's keep going. Look at verses four and five. He tells them about this place, this preparation, which really we have to think about, and, and, and he's gonna challenge them because we think about heaven as a place, like we wanna put heaven in our GPS and say, God, show us the, the way, the route to heaven. And that's kind of what Thomas says here. Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. Now he's told them right now you can't come. You can't come yet. It's not time for you to come. I'm going to go. But there's a way to get to where I'm going, and you know it already. And Thomas speaks up. You know, Thomas is the one that's got to see it, right? He's got to see it. He's got to touch it. And he says, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's the one that wants, Thomas wants the map right? He's like, look, I can't put the destination into my 
iPhone to tell me how to get there unless you, like, I can't, I don't even have the address, Jesus. We don't even know what address to put in there. How are we going to figure out the way to get there if we don't even know exactly where you're going? Because he said, you can't follow me now. But yeah, he tells them they know the way, and Thomas doesn't understand. He says, what do you mean we know the way? We don't even know exactly where you're going. And it sounds kind of desperate because their greatest fear right now is Jesus leaving. So, so they're thinking, Jesus, whatever we have to do to, to stay with you, we don't want to leave you. We don't want you to leave us. Whatever we have to do, like you tell us. But he's talking this way, and they're like, wait, Jesus, no, 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 no. We don't even know. You say you're leaving, but we can't come with you, but we know the way. How can we, how can, we don't understand that. Do you remember, I don't know if you have memories like this, but I do, when your kids were little and, and we would go as a family on like a vacation or something and my boys were small riding in the car. And did you ever have that moment as a parent or maybe as a dad when you're driving the car, like, you, like we're going on vacation, we're going wherever, we're going to our beach hotel, we're going to Disney World, we're going to wherever we're going, going to the mountains. You know where you're going and you know how to get there. But maybe your eight-year-old sitting in the back says, hey, Dad, do you, know, do you know where we're going? Are you sure you know where you're going? Like, I'll just have to be honest with y'all. I, I, like, in a moment like that, I want to go, are you kidding me? You are eight. <laughs> Don't question me. Who's driving this car? Right? They just know, all they know is we're going to Disney World. They hadn't looked at the map. They don't know how to get there. They may even be so young, they don't even know it's in another state. Right? They don't know that it takes 10, 12 hours to get there. All they know is I come out of the house, I get in the car, and then eventually I'm going to get out of the car and I'll be there. But it's up to dad, right, to figure out what's the route, what's the plan. And, and what, we wanna, what I want to say to them, sometimes even in frustration, is they say, well, how are we going to get there? You want to go, don't worry about it. Don't worry about how we're going to get there because all you need to know is as long as you're with me, you're going to get there because I know where I'm going. I remember being on a mission trip in New York, in Brooklyn, and it was my job as the leader to know how to navigate the subway. And, and listen, I'll be honest with y'all. I'm not trying to be arrogant or anything, but I did a pretty good job of getting us from place to place through the subway systems of New York City. Like I, I have a, my wife, Kim talks about all the time how I can navigate. If you take me to another city I've never been before, I can find my way around, but I can't tell you how to get anywhere here. Like, I can't, my sense of direction in Roman Floyd County is awful, but you take me to New York or Chicago or Washington somewhere, like, I, I've, I can see the map. I'm like, okay, I know which way we're going. And I remember having, like, high school students walking up behind me, like, I'm, we're walking through the subway, and I'm like, you guys follow me. And they're coming up behind me going, you sure we're going in the right direction? Yes. 
I had one young lady one time. <laughs> I won't say her name. But she came up beside me like that, and she was like, you sure, you, you sure we're going in the right direction? Why don't you let me lead, she said. I, th- I know where we're going. Why don't you let me go? And I just looked at her, and I said, your teacher never let you be the line leader in kindergarten, did they? <laughs> I'm like, stay in your lane. <laughs> I, I know where we're going. Go, quit, quit. Quit second-guessing me. I think this is kind of what Jesus says when he gets to verse 6. Thomas says, Jesus, how can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. In verse 6 of chapter 14, one of the most powerful statements Jesus ever said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't say, I'll, sh- I'll show you the way. Here, let me, t- let me have your phone. I'll put the address in there so you know where to go. He says, the reason you already know the way is because you know me. I'm the way. I'm the way. And as long as you're with me, as long as you're in the car with me, you're going to get there because I'm the way. Not the map. Don't don't look at the map. I'm the way. Jesus says, I'm the way, because what has he already told us? It builds on what he's already said. In chapter 10, one of the previous statements, what did Jesus say about the sheepfold? He said, I am the door, right? He said, I'm the gate. And we saw that picture of there's only one opening. And Jesus says, I am that opening. I am the gate that guards the opening. You know the way because you know me. You believe in me because I'm the door. So he says, I am the way. And then he says, I am the truth. He's already tried to convince them and tell them, look, I'm not, why would I lie? Have you ever known me to tell you something that doesn't turn out to be true? If we go back to the beginning of John's gospel, we can see how John in telling his story is connecting all of these things. Go back to John chapter one, verse 14. Look at what it says. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and what? Truth. He says, I am the truth. So there's lots of things about the truth. I mean, look at what he made, John says about Jesus in verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, the one and only son, which means truth, is singular. It's not plural. It's not multiple. Jesus is the one and only. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. The concept of multiple truths is contradictory. Truth is an absolute. So to say, and, and, but that's what culture, that's what this world has bought into, the lie that everybody can have their own thing and it can all be truth. It can't. Jesus says there's only one truth. There's, there's, there's a gate, there's one door, and I'm the way, and there's one truth, the one and only, full of grace and truth. So that doesn't mean, that also means that Jesus is the completeness of all truth. He's full of grace and truth. He's not like half grace and half truth. 
He's full of grace. He's full of truth. That means that the, he is the singular embodiment of all truth is in Jesus. So that's why he says to them in those verses before, would I have told you that that wasn't the case? Or that, that it, it, would I have told you all that I have a place prepared for you if I didn't? Because he's full of truth. And then in that third statement, he says, I am the life. Last week, he said it. He said it already in chapter 11 at Lazarus' tomb. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Go back to John chapter 1 again. Look at verse 4 in John chapter 1. In him was what? Life. And that life was the light of men. You can see how when John writes this, this introduction, chapter 1 of John is just one of my favorite places in the New Testament. It's, it's incredible how he's taken everything that Jesus has said about himself and he's written it into this introduction of Jesus as the, the logos, the word. In him was life, abundant life, here and now through faith. So Jesus is the fullness of the abundant life that he comes to give us now that we can experience right here in this life. He is the fullness of eternal life that we will, we will have one day, that will one day be in sight. Like right now we live in faith, then we'll live in sight. We'll be able to see it. Jesus is the life that defeats the death that's in us because of sin. As we've said over and over and over, Jesus is the life because we are dead in our sins. And the only one who can bring something dead to life is the creator of life, the one who can make everything out of nothing, and that's only Jesus. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. All singular all exclusive. The world wants multiple ways, don't they? Nobody wants one gate. It's like at a theme park. You ever gone to a big, you know, like, I, I'm sorry I keep talking about Disney, but it's just the biggest example. You go to the front gate, there's all these different entrances. And you just, you, you pick the one, what? That's got the shortest line. That's what everybody wants to do with heaven. Let's pick the easiest one. Let's pick the quickest one. Let's pick the one that will get us what we want, the fastest and the easiest. And Jesus says there's, there's not multiple gates. There's one. There's one turnstile. I want you to look at, at, at Matthew. We're going to go back. I want us to wrap up looking at Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, because Jesus says something else in Matthew's gospel that pertains to what he's talking about here. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. Who is the gate? Jesus, because he's already said. He said, I am the door, I am the gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to what? Destruction. The one everybody wants to go down is the one that will kill them. And there are many who go through it. Big, huge, wide gate, broad road, tons of people going through it. 
But verse 14, how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. This is just me. But I see John 14, 6 in Matthew 7, 14. Look at it. How narrow is the gate. The gate is what? The way. And difficult the road. That's, that's the way that leads to the life. Or maybe you could even say that the gate would be like the truth. Narrow is that. I used to have people in, in high school, and I had all kinds of stuff in my head wrong when I was a Christian teenager growing up. I was dumb. Just like most Christian teenagers are dumb to a certain extent. That's why I love them. But I used to have people tell me how narrow-minded I was. Like as a, as a junior. Well, truth, according to Jesus, is pretty narrow. It's pretty singular. How narrow is the gate? Maybe that's the truth. And difficult the road, which is the way that leads to the life that is Jesus. And Jesus says there's only a few that find it. Why do so few find Jesus? Because it takes surrender to find Jesus. It takes giving up. And that's not anything that anybody wants to do. Here's what Jesus is in this last, this is the last big statement. Jesus is the singular and exclusive fulfillment of all we need for salvation. There isn't anything else. He is the full, singular fulfillment of everything, and it's exclusive. Jesus isn't a version of the way and a version of the truth and a version of the life. He is it. And there's no other. And the only way you come to saving faith in Jesus is to understand that about him. You don't choose Jesus as an option to get to truth. You come to Jesus in faith believing that what he says is true. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There is no life apart from Jesus. There is no truth outside of Jesus. And there is no other way to eternity other than Jesus. Have you believed that about him? Is that the way you've come to Jesus?